It's so good to see you guys. Last week we started uh, a new series called Salt and Light, really birthed out of Matthew 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the very beginning, and he calls to uh, probably a pretty diverse group of people, uh, not too um, different from, from what's in this room, and he says, you are the salt of the earth, and later on he said, you are the light of the world, that our conversations, our lifestyles would be salty, not in the way um, that we, we might think about it, but that they preserve truth and they carry out uh, his grace and his love into all of the earth and all of the world, and that w- you are the light of the world, um, and that, that's, that's me, that's each one of us, uh, we're the light of the world, and so we're going to extend that conversation that we started last week when we talked about the sacred beauty of race. Had so many just good comments for just the teaching last week, and, and uh, thank you for just engaging, and today I want to continue kind of on this journey um, as we talk about sexuality, and everybody's like, gets excited or gets nervous when you say something about sexuality um, or sex in church. Um, but it's a really important conversation for us to have um, because there's a, a cultural war in regards to sexuality. There's, there's, a, just a, there's a, a, a kind of a, a war going on. Uh, I remember when we first moved to Jacksonville. When we lived in Georgia, uh, we lived one mile from Chick-fil-A. And that, was, that life was good. I felt like I should have stock in it at that point. And then we moved to Jacksonville, and we moved a third of a mile from Chick-fil-A. It was really all about Chick-fil-A, I guess. Um, and we got there, and, and so we ate lots of uh, fried chicken then, too. Um, but right at that time, in 2012, when we moved here, do you guys remember this whole culture war that happened with Chick-fil-A? Like, someone asked Chick-fil-A about their stance on same-sex marriage, and they just kind of said kind of what they believed, and then they got all this backlash. They didn't go out and blast anybody. They weren't refusing people's service, but they just kind of said what they believed, and it became this kind of culture war on this topic. And, and my heart just broke. My heart broke so much in that season. We first moved here because we were just coming to a city and just wanted to love the people in front of us, and, and I felt like a big part of our calling was to restore trust in a church uh, that would operate in a graceful and loving way and be light in the world, to be the salt of the earth. And as I found this and just this constant negativity going back and forth, my heart just broke and I'm just like, something is wrong. Like we're in this kind of fighting mode against each other and when we're really supposed to be salt and we're really um, supposed to be light. And, and I found many people operate in a way that was not very delightful and was not very salty in the way I think that Jesus intended it to. So I want to have this conversation today about sexuality and and hope that uh, you engage and and pray that God would speak to you in this process. Uh, Some people look at at the church, and and I think in this conversation, maybe even going back to what we were talking about last week, say, I I can't do the church thing, I can't do the Christian thing, because it seems there's Christians just pick double standards, they have double standards. Like, on the topics of race, you know, by and large, they, they step up to the table and defend uh, equality uh, um, among um, uh, someone's race or ethnicity. But when it comes to matters of uh, sexual orientation, they seem to kind of fall on a, a different spectrum, and they don't fight for that, and they seem to be really judgmental. And some of that is, is, is probably very true. There are a lot of judgmental people and, and hateful people, in fact, uh, in kind of uh, the homophobic South that we, we live in. And, and there is a lot of that. And, and people may, may, may look at, at the church and say, why do you... Why is there this dichotomy or, or this difference of um, how we approach these two matters? And, and while there's a lot of complexity that goes into this conversation, as we'll see as we move on, it, it, it's really a pretty simple answer um, 
of why we view these two things like we do is that race and sexuality are, are both God-given, and therefore we believe they're sacred. We protect someone's race and fight for their ethnicity because we believe it's sacred, that it's God-given. And the same thing um, sexually, um, that a, a person's gender and orientation is given by God, and therefore believing that it's sacred. I, I think the, the follow-up question to those that would kind of ask questions on that is, why do you treat one as sacred and not the other? And this conversation, while it'll take some steps and kind of engage a large conversation in regards to same-sex attraction, this is, this, the whole conversation is really not going to be about same-sex attraction. It's going to be about heterosexuality and healthy sexuality as defined by the scriptures and by the Lord. So ask yourself, do you treat one as sacred and maybe not the other so today, because this, this conversation is quite complex, and there's a lot of angles, and I feel there's a lot of problems and a need for solutions on a lot of these fronts, I think it's important that we kind of deal with the problems on three different fronts. The first front I, I want to deal with is a logical question, that we've got a, a logical problem. The second, a theological, and the, and the third one we'll end with is a relational problem. And hopefully along the way, last week I just left you with questions and questions that really in our journey that God would teach us. Today I'm hoping to, to be able to highlight some solutions as we uh, wrap our, our minds around this. So uh, let's deal with the logical problem. And I, I think if we were to take a poll as we came into uh, the service today or take poll in churches as uh, all over the country, I, I think we would be a, a little bit um, surprised with some of the results on two very foundational principles of the Christian faith, two very foundational, um, logical beginnings for the Christian faith, and how many people um, that claim to be Christians do not identify with these two foundations. And, and I'll just tell you, if you don't have these two uh, legs of the faith, if you don't have these, then really everything else you're, you're kind of establishing on top is, is really just ready to fall and fall to pieces. Those two things, one is absolute truth. Absolute truth. We live in a society that doesn't really engage with absolute truth, but uh, Jesus is really clear. So he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Nobody goes to the Father except through me. That, that sounds like pretty much absolute truth. Jesus is saying there's, there's kind of one way to, to, to heaven, one way to, to God. But we, we live in a society that's very different um, from that. And even there, John 17, your word is truth, God. Your word is truth, speaking of, of his audible words and uh, as well as the word of God. I was listening to Dr. Ravi, Ravi Zacharias, a Christian apologist, and he was talking about this cultural war when it comes to absolute truth. And uh, he really described the cultures globally in really three different ways. There's really three different types of cultures around the world. One is a theonomous culture. Theo meaning God, onomous meaning law. That uh, A culture that has uh, a, theon uh, a law of God embedded on our hearts. Um, our founding fathers really understood this and really came here to establish our country. There were certain uh, unalienable rights uh, embedded in our hearts that seem to be self-evident, endowed by their creator. You guys remember some of this stuff? It, it, all that right there is kind of embedded law of God, that respecting our parents, not murdering our neighbor, maybe even not lying. Some of these things seem to be 
self-evident in the way that we would treat each other. It's the law of God. That it's just nat- it's natural uh, that it's given to us. Uh, the second uh, type, and I would just ask you, do we live in a theonomous culture? I'm not talking about in a little microcosm, but I'm talking about nationally. Well, pro- no, pro- probably not. We, we don't live in a theonomous culture. What about a heteronymous culture? That, that's the other one he mentioned. A heteronymous culture meaning another uh, another law, and really the idea here is this type of culture is a culture dictated, morality dictated from an elite few, maybe at the top, um, that kind of dictate what's moral and what's right. We see this in Marxism. Uh, the, the Muslim faith is really run this way. They tell you when to fast. They tell you when to pray. They tell you what you can wear. They tell you what you can't wear. It's very much dictated in, in that fashion, and this happens in cultures around the world. Are, are we in America, would you, you find us to be a heteronymous culture? Some would be like, maybe a little bit. <laughs> maybe it's getting there on some fronts, maybe not. Um, most likely not, but maybe the third one we might identify a little more, uh, autonomous culture. Auto meaning self, autonomous meaning law, self-law, that each person kind of gets to make up their own moral prerogatives and dictate their own morals. The problem that runs in, the question that we have to ask, is that the culture we live in? Yeah, that, that seems to sound fit the bill a little bit more. Okay, well, when I believe something, or my morals say one thing and your morals say another, am I going to be granted the freedom and liberty for my autonomy, or is that going to infringe upon your autonomy? It's really a philosophical law called the law of non-contradiction, that two things um, that are, are true can't, um, can't contradict one another. Uh, we, we can both be wrong, but we can't both be right if we disagree on something. So uh, I'll, let you, I'll let that simmer a little bit. Uh, but there's this logical problem. The first is, is absolute truth, and this is a pillar and foundation for our faith. The second one is the authority of the scriptures. These are pillars of what the Christian faith stands on. And sadly, again, if we were to take that survey in in our lives, some of us might not really grab a hold of these. Or I think I find just in my conversations and daily dealings with people that people are really afraid to read the Bible. Like, I, I don't think anyone says, I'm afraid to read the Bible, but I think one of the things running as a threat is we're afraid to read the Bible. We're afraid um, because we might be ignorant of what it says. Like, I'm not going to read the Old Testament because I don't understand it. It's like saying, I'm not going to go to the gym because I don't know how to work out. Um, you know, I, I think because of ignorance, I think because of correction, I'm not going to go to the gym because the, the trainer's probably going to tell me I'm doing something wrong. I, I need to eat better. I need to stop eating Oreos at 9 o'clock at night. Right? He's going to probably tell me there's some, of the, some of those things. We're afraid of our ignorance. We're afraid of correction. And I think we're afraid of God. I think we have some like false perceptions about his scriptures. And maybe we miss John chapter 15 when the scriptures say that, that God prunes the ones that he loves. It is out of his love that he corrects us. And so we, we don't have to fear to go to the scriptures. We don't have to be afraid that we might be challenged, knowing that it's out of God's love and that he knows what's best for us and he's leading us into all, all truth through his Holy Spirit. And so uh, this, these two kind of logical things, I, I think, is, is one place we stand. I, I, now, I, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'll raise my hand if anyone in the room is a skeptic. I'm I'm a transformed skeptic. I said you don't have to raise your hand, but everybody started raising their hands. Um, we get a lot of skeptics, and I'm in your club. So there, I remember seeing this one movie, and uh, this coach was like, 
trying to like ask his, his players, I think it was a football locker room, and he's like, now how many of you guys, um, you know, will agree with me on this, yeah, ever gone through this, and like nobody agreed with him. He was the only one, so he raised his hand, and this other guy raised his hand too, and he's like, thank you, this guy gets it. He's like, coach, I just didn't want you to be the only one raising your hand, <laughs> you know, I was just doing it to help you out. But I know there's a lot of skeptics um, in the room, and America has kind of, I think, even bred this in some ways. Uh, but I feel like I'm a transformed skeptic, that God's really given me a passion, uh, and, and I've had a taste of Jesus in, in which I, I view the world now through that lens. Um, and as skeptics, I, I think one of the, this kind of whole conversation um, is really kind of was birthed out of, out of a, a study that was done, some research in 1993. Um, and, and there was another, the second most popular study has been like 2014, 2015, but it's all built off when we begin to talk about um, same-sex attraction and homosexuality. Something that came out of that 1993 um, uh, uh, research is, is something called the, the quote-unquote gay gene, uh, XQ28. And if you begin to kind of do some secular kind of research on this, you'll see that it's not really accepted within the scientific community. Talk to a geneticist about this. And, and while you'll find scientists and geneticists that will support gay rights, they won't support the, the genetic um, reason of why those rights uh, come to play. And so this is where this whole conversation um, started from. And so uh, what I wanted to do in this time um, for people like me, um, that, that hey, I, I need to see this at, at another angle. I need to kind of face some of the science, and, and I encourage you to go do your own research on it. And so what I did is I didn't go and say, hey, let me find a pastor who is taught on this and who brought the science you wanted to bring to the table. I went looking for the secular research. I went looking for non-biased research. I, I wanted to keep the, the, the biased stuff kind of to the side, and I, I really wanted to see, okay, what does the scientific community as a whole view on this. And I want to give you just a, really a, a, a basically a non-biased secular summary of, of the science behind this. Uh, the first is on, on change. Uh, in adults, half of those with exclusive same-sex attraction move towards heterosexuality uh, over a lifetime. If you begin to drill down into that statistic and some uh, other research, that uh, only about, um, there's actually more people who have um, changed from homosexuality at some point than there are who are practicing um, homosexuals. Uh, in adolescence, most teenagers, and, and we can most uh, see this to, to be true, uh, in the 16-17 year old age group, 98% will move from homosexuality and bisexual, bisexuality towards um, heterosexuality. So there's, there's change here. Um, so that, that's one. The second one is genes, and I feel like this is probably the most compelling argument scientifically um, because, again, that study that was done, it, it was really not recognized within the genetic community and within the, the scientific community uh, because of its antiquated methods and its small sample size, uh, and it was kind of stretching kind of the truth, as we do sometimes with, with numbers. Uh, this particular study was birthed from uh, an Australian um, research group, and they did it across five or six different major countries and it was, it was the largest sample size ever done on a topic like this. And it, it's the most compelling argument. Complex comparisons of identical and non-identical twins definitively rule out genetic determinism. Identical twins with identical genes are about 11 to 14% consistent with same-sex attraction. If it were genetic, identical twins would have 100% consistency. If 
if the DNA is exactly the same, if the genetic code is exactly the same, then both of them um, would have it, but that only happened on about 11 to 14% consistency in the research done across five or six different countries um, all across the world. Uh, if it were passed down, there would be large patterns in families for generation and generation. When I saw that one, I'm like, I've never really thought about that. I never really thought about this idea that, I mean, if it was genetic, like we would see it really passed down, but, but rarely, rarely we do. Um, if it were genetic, it would be similar in countries around the world, uh, not meaning exactly the same, but the trends would be similar. Instead, it varies greatly. Changes would show themselves over long periods of history. Instead, they, they show themselves rather rapidly. Uh, that the changes, if they were having genetically, they would just pan out over time and really grow. But in fact, many times the, the studies show that it happens really rapidly, so to speak, uh, in the, the grand scheme of time. A lot of times people have questions about hormones, and really changing the level of male and female hormones has, it's changed sex drive, but it doesn't change orientation. There's no studies to, to, to prove that. A sociological, uh, the occurrence is much higher among those that have been raised in major cities as opposed to rural areas arguing for the importance of environment. Uh, I know for all the skeptics in the house, like I could, I could make counter-arguments on, on most of these. There's some of these I, I really can't find counter-arguments, but for, for a couple of these I can find counter-arguments and ways to go down. But I think what it boils down to is um, scientifically, uh, science concludes that there's no one cause here. There's no one cause that can be proven. No single genetic, hormonal, societal, or environmental factor that predicts or determines same-sex attraction. And so I think there's this logical problem that we have to deal with. This whole conversation and this whole kind of movement um, has been birthed off of a study that's really not even accepted within its its own community um, scientifically. And there's just so much out there. And there's still yet a lot to be learned and understood on this uh, this topic. Um, And so I I think that that's, we got to deal with this from a, a logical problem in, in the logical um, way that, that there's one way, and, and then uh, as, as believers, are, are we going to live our lives on feelings and relationships? Are we going to build, build our, our lives off of God's word and his truth? And so it's really a logical problem, a logical direction I, I wanted to start with. And I, I think the second one is a theological problem that we face, and this is where I really want to pivot and expand our conversation, as I, I said before, to a much broader audience that this is... The, the problems that we face in sexuality are not just homosexual kind of attraction. It goes far beyond that. It goes far beyond that. It, it goes into um, a, a large majority of everyone that's in this room, we've faced um, having to, to, to deal with sexual immorality in our lives or in our relationships or in our marriage. And it really begins with this thought, lust is a sexual desire that dishonors its object and disregards God. I want to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and deal with the theological problem here. As for other matters, um, brothers and sisters, we instructed you to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of Lord, the Lord Jesus. It's God's will. And as we begin this sentence, as you're reading along with me, I, I want you to, to kind of put the I in there. It's God's will that I should be sanctified, that I should avoid sexual immorality, that, that I should learn to control my own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans 
who don't know God. And in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage. I shouldn't wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Let's, let's, let's stop. And I really want to focus verse kind of three and four and five here for just a second. That each of us should be sanctified. We should be set apart. We should be holy. We should be a reflection of God. Jesus said in, in John, the Gospel of John, that I am the light of the world. In Matthew, he said, you are the light of the world. And so there's this reflection that he is shining his light through us. That we should be a reflection of that and be sanctified. That we should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own, um, your own body. Uh, the, the word uh, for control your own body is really the idea of to have and to hold, to to acquire, to, to have, and really it's talked about on the front of uh, marital, marital relationships. Uh, and in this time, uh, it was very different in how we look at relationships. If you're really interested on kind of the, the, this topic of marriage, please mark October 1st on your calendar. We're going to have a marriage conference here, and it's going to be a great day of teaching and uh, just getting better at um, this beautiful um, thing of marriage. So th- this Greek word, katayomai, um, to marry a wife, or to have and to hold, that each one should, should learn to have his own, have his own vessel is, is some, how some theologians will put this. And, and go back to the text and we'll see um, each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. And, and he shows us what's the opposite of holy and honorable? Not in passionate lust. Passionate lust is the opposite of holy and honorable. And he says, like the pagans do who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should take advantage. This word for um, no one take advantage, I'm sorry, I'm messing up my nose, um, is this word hyperbiano. It's a, it's a Greek term, and it means to overstep boundaries. Like no one should take advantage. No one should overstep the boundaries. That's, a lot of times when you look at Greek definitions, there's like three or four different definitions that it could be based on usage and the context clues. And this one, this is the only definition. It means to overstep boundaries. Uh, and, and many times that's translated uh, to mean take advantage. That God has put before us, he's put before us boundaries within our sexuality. And because we're human, because we're just naturally rebellious, and we do what we want, and God has given us choice. It's one of God's greatest gifts. God's given us choice. And while we love that choice, we love to go in a restaurant and have all the choice in the world. It's very difficult when we have choice. The one thing God has, has not given us is for us to change the outcome of our choices. He, hasn't, he, he, he gives us the truth. He gave us Jesus. He's given us his scriptures here in our time. And God has established boundaries within our sexuality. But many times, because we're humans, we, we, we naturally just rebel from these boundaries. And, and if you were like, I was, I, I grew up in church, and I constantly um, hated rules, right? We hate rules. You hate when you show up to a new job, and all you do in the first, you know, two days is learn about all the rules and the protocols and all the things you can do, or those teachers that are going back to school, you probably had an orientation, and this is what you can do, this is what you can't do, this is what you shouldn't do, all these best practices, so to speak. And God's defined those within our sexuality, but because we're naturally rebellious, we rebel against those boundaries and assume that, that God's trying to restrict us from something or take, us, take something from us. When in fact, I, I don't give my son like rules that he can't go play out in the street because I hate my son. I, I don't tell him to stay in the backyard so I can keep an eye on you because I hate him and because I don't want him to have fun outside. 
It's because I love him and I know what's best for him. And if, if he disobeys that, there's a, a, there's a consequence that comes with that. And, and so the same thing like if some of the dog lovers in the house, cat lovers in the house, you don't put your, your dog or your cat inside the house. You don't put them on a leash when you're outside because you hate your animal. You do it because you love them and because you don't want them to run in the street. God gives us boundaries, not because he's trying to hold us back from something. He's trying to actually keep us because he loves us and he wants to spend eternity uh, with us. God has established boundaries within our sexuality and we shouldn't push those back. Uh, Let's continue the, the passage and just round it out here. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. As we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life, to be sanctified. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So lust is not just something that's, that's for, for um, just a, a small group that we need to have this conversation with. It, it's, it's for every single one of us. And, and lust is it's, it's sexual desire that, that dishonors its object and uh, disregards God. We act like pagans that don't even know God and we just disregard the, one, the very one who, um, who gave us um, his Holy Spirit. We're not rejecting a human being, but God. I heard this quote um, many years ago. It said, a fence always falls long enough to realize why it was put there in the first place. A fence always falls long enough to realize why it was put there in the first place. Some of you can remember just kind of mom and dad having certain rules and uh, you rebelled from those rules pretty good. Like, I, I was, like, classically known for, like, sneaking out of the house. That was one of my rules that, like, I, I, not, that I broke, uh, is I would sneak out of the house all the time. I cannot imagine my kid sneaking out of the house right now. Like, I, I, or even, like, when he gets older, I can't imagine. I did it pretty young. But I can't imagine him doing that. And those boundaries are put there for a reason. And, and many times, if, when we try to push those over, by the time it hits the ground, at some point, we're going to look at the consequences that we found ourselves in and realize, oh, that was there for a reason, wasn't it? Some of us, even in our sexuality, in, in your journey, like you've made mistakes and, and you found yourself jumping over the fence or pushing the fence over and then looking back and like, man, there was kind of a reason for that. I probably... I'm kind of dealing with some shame now, or I'm dealing with this particular consequence. So um, let's continue on this theological problem for just a second, on this topic of lust for just a second, because I think this covers just, just about everybody. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7 are really beautiful. I'm just going to real quickly touch on that, so I'm not even going to throw it up here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7 is a really beautiful picture of uh, just an added bonus of marriage. And when at this time, a lot of times we think that the problems that we, de- we deal with are very like just current problems, but really they're far beyond that. The, the same problems that we're facing in regards to sexual identity and lust and sexual desire, they were facing in the early church. Like I, I know we'll have like, uh, like, uh, like the immediacy like kind of bias, but they were facing these problems uh, even in 1 Corinthians, and male men are sweet, sleeping with prostitutes. And Paul slams on the brakes and is like, hey guys, hey, right here, listen up. They're probably sleeping with male and female prostitutes. 
And he's like, you need to flee from sexual immorality. You don't need to kind of stick around. You don't need to keep the Facebook message going. You don't need to keep going with the little kind of looks. You don't need to go to that part of town if that's where the prostitutes are hanging out. He said, you need to flee from it. You need to run from it. You need to run to a, a, a place uh, that's sanctified and holy. And he, he goes on to say that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't you know that you've been purchased with a price? First Corinthians, very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That, that there is beauty in how God's created you and that his spirit resides in you. Your, your, your vessel, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He goes on into chapter 7 and gives instructions to husband and wives and, hey, and even to singles. Hey, if you can't control yourself as a single, you should probably look for a spouse, right? And, and some of you in this house that are single, you're like, hey, I can't control myself and I'm looking for a spouse, it's not working out. <laughs> you know, like I, I want, and, and, and I get that and understand that, but Paul's stru- instructions are, hey, you, you need to flee from sexual immorality and you need to, to run towards um, uh, controlling your body and keeping your body in an honorable way. He goes on to tell husbands and wives that you don't belong to yourself. Just as you, you don't belong to yourself and you've been bought with a price with Christ, you submit, and, and your husband, your wife has authority over you, and, and wife, your husband has authority over you. It's really not a matter of authority. It's a matter, a matter of mutual submission, and that that person has needs, and you're not to kind of, um, kind of hold out on them sexually, except for a time set aside for prayer, because God has created us with this sacred, beautiful gift of sexual desire, but there's boundaries within it. And, and, and uh, I always t- talk about this with, uh, in my pre-marriage counseling, and couples always get a giggle out of that. Yeah, God instructs you to have sex with your spouse, and you shouldn't hold out on them. And the guys are like, yeah, that's right, you know. You just do this. Or the ladies are like, yeah, that's right. You know, the kind of... And so, um, I better stop right there. I'm going to embarrass my wife, so I'm just going to shut my mouth. Up. I'm going to move on. Um, Sorry. Maybe at the marriage conference we'll go where I was about to go. Yeah, I'll go, I'll go there at the marriage conference if you're interested in what I was about to say. See October 1st. Um, let's deal with some more of the theological problem. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. Paul is beginning his address in a letter to the church at Rome. And I'm telling you, this was a widespread thing. This wasn't just at the Corinthians church. It just wasn't over at this church. Every, just about every church he goes to, he talks about sexual immorality. Right, so this isn't just like a one topic, kind of one little place in the scriptures. It's overboard, uh, overall. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires. You know what? Right before this text, he's talking about idol worship. That their, their eyes, right, not just in that sexual moment. Somebody needs to hear this. Not just in that sexual moment of weakness where you fall back into the pornography addiction or that one moment of weakness where you end up sleeping with someone that's not your spouse or cheating on them. Not just in that one moment, but there was idol worship going on the rest of the time that led up. And finally, God gave them over. God gave them over to, their, to the sinful desires of their hearts, to, to, sex, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies. It goes back to the First Thessalonians um, uh, degrading of bodies. They exchanged the, the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. He's just like preaching. He's like, I gotta get myself an amen on that. Um, because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lust. He gave them over to their sinful desires. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. 
In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women uh, and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. I want to talk really candidly about this, giving over, giving them over. And, and someone in this room is probably in this place, and, and I don't know anybody, I don't know a situation. But in fact, I, I think there's probably um, a, a lot more than just one or two, um, where at one point you saw something as wrong, right? And, and then you kept doing that, um, and, and you, eventually you, you'd feel shame. You'd feel the shame that came from this. Men came in the shameful. You'd feel the shame, that, but eventually that shame just kind of wore down. Right? And where I just don't feel bad about it anymore. And, and it's basically a hardening of our hearts. And where the, the, the uh, conscience that God has placed in you and this the theonomous view that the, the law is built into our hearts where naturally even a child like knows this. We learn this very early on or born with just a conscience within us of what's right and wrong. But over time, like we just suppress that. We're like, nope, nope. It's about my sexual desires. It's about my passionate lust or what I want. And then slowly but surely, at some point, and not everybody's here, but some people are probably here. We're like, I don't even feel bad about it anymore. And then we take that as a God's stamp of approval. But really what's happened, it's not God's stamp of approval. It's God saying, you want to do your thing? Do your thing. You want to not recognize me? You want to worship the created and not the creator? Go ahead. Do your thing. Have fun, but you're going to deal with the consequences. I've given you choice, but at some point you're going to realize. And that doesn't mean God's given up with you, but the, but the, the scriptures are true. At, at some point, he's like, hey, you're going to keep doing your thing. You're going to keep doing your thing. You're going to have to learn the hard way. I break this down with my kids. Uh, very, I get in their face, and I'm like, bud, and I'm not yelling at them. I, I'm like, man, there's two ways to go through life. There's the easy way, and there's the hard way. Right when I first, when I was a, uh, a new parent, uh, I didn't talk to him about the easy way and the hard way. I just spanked his butt and said, "This is the hard way," <laughs> you know. And I moved on. And now I'm in such a different place as a parent that I, I look him in his eyes and I break this down for him. I'm like, "Hey, I need you right here, right here." There's an easy way and a hard way, and some of us have been going the hard way for a really long time. And we're dealing with the consequences. We're dealing it in our own sexuality, in confusion, in own lust or desires. We're dealing with it in our relationship with our spouse. We're dealing with it in the sinfulness of our mind and what we see ourselves looking at and constantly focused on, particularly sexually. And, and we've been kind of given over to some of those things. And that's why it's really important um, that we know, first of all, admit the, the sinfulness of uh, our hearts. And, and not quit, quit passing the blame. Well, if, if uh, my, my husband would do this, or if my wife would do this, or, or if she wouldn't wear that short skirt, then it, you know, quit passing the blame to somebody else. If my mom, or if my dad, or if somebody else, or my brother, if, if this wouldn't happen, quit passing the blame. Own their sinfulness in our heart. And then, but, but the beauty of it is that we can, I, I came up with like a little preacher saying, you guys know I'm not like super preachy, and I don't have like these great preacher sayings, and I don't have a great preacher voice, so sorry if you're really into that, I'm just not good at it. Um, but quit passing the blame, lay down your shame, call on his name, right? right? Isn't that super preachy? Like super, I wish I could do it in a cool voice, but I'm, I'm that bad at the preacher voice. I can't even fake it good. But we do that. We, we pass the blame, but, God's, but God hasn't called us to live in that shame. Um, Romans uh, 12.1, the author and finisher of our faith, bore our shame. He's the perfecter of our faith. He bore our shame. And for the joy that was set before him, 
He endured the cross. That joy being us. It's his joy to his pleasure to carry our shame. The truth is that our feelings will lie to us. And we rely on the the scriptures to define our convictions. And our spiritual family to refine our convictions. We rely on the scriptures to define our convictions. And we rely on our spiritual family to help refine our convictions. I think sometimes like we just find ourselves just distant. And I think it goes back to just the authority of Scripture and leaning into it and some of the fears we have or fear that we're ignorant or um, fear that we're going to be corrected. And it's this false perception of God that when you get there, He's just going to heap more shame on you. He's just going to heap more condemnation on you. But Romans 8.1 is so beautiful. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That, that your perception that you've built up, that when you p- try to push that fence over, and you think like a lightning bolt's coming, right? right? When you jump over the fence a couple times, instead we look to the parable of the lost son, and, and, and it's the father lifting up his garments and laying down his honor and, and running towards the son. That's the picture of our God. It, it, it's not a God who's just waiting for you to mess up. It's a God who has lovingly set boundaries because he knows what is best. And that's difficult for us to to kind of wade through sometimes. But the truth is that our feelings will lie to us. Our feelings, and honestly, the enemy uses our feelings so much against us. Constantly. Where we'll just sulk in our shame. We'll We'll just pat our sin. We'll just get used to it. My kids have these little teddies. Beckett's got a teddy, and Camden's got a monkey, monkney, he calls it. And they take them everywhere, and they smell terrible, because they've got slobber and boogers all over them. And constantly throughout the day, they just want to hold that monkey, they just want to hold that teddy. Some of us treat our sin like that, right? I'm trying to get my son to grow up and be like, bro, you don't have to take that to the dinner table, leave monkey in his bed. I know, am I mean dad, whatever. Um... But I, I'm saying, hey, I'm trying to help him grow up, and God's trying to help you grow up. He's, he's trying to bring life. He's trying to bring fulfillment and maturity into your walk with him. And it's a matter of setting aside our feelings and, and leaning into the scriptures. And, and if you're struggling through this, don't, don't struggle through, through this topic on your own. Like God has, if God's not done anything else, I know he's created a loving, graceful environment among our leadership and among this church that you're not going to be judged for what you've gone through. You're not going to be judged for what you've done. Uh, you're, you're going to be uh, led and encouraged that, that God has a plan that's way bigger and that how God's created you, your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So um, let, let's move on. Let's deal with the last problem. It's the relational problem. It's the relational problem. Um, I'm going to read to you. I don't even know if they have it back there. Uh, John chapter 8. It's one of the most beautiful scriptures to me, uh, particularly on this topic. Romans chapter 8, we'll big, pick up at verse 7. Uh, actually, let me back up just a little bit. I'll read from the beginning. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Think about that. She got caught. <laughs> They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Can you just wrap your brain around that for a second? Somebody like drags a woman in here, like this one caught her in bed with somebody that's not her husband. 
right? Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. I mean, everybody in the room would be looking at those dudes that just brought her in and be like, what are you doing? Bring her in here right now. Let's deal with this another time. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They're trying to test Jesus. They were using a question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. You ever think of those, if I had, I'd love to be a fly on that wall, right? This is one of those, I would love to be seeing what he is writing right then. When they kept on questioning him, they kept on going, he straightened up. I just love this picture. Like Jesus is not affected by their questions. He's just down in the sand and he's just like doodling in the sand. They keep going at him and he straightens up and said to them, if one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And he went back to writing. He stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left. Till the woman standing there, uh, was still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. Go and leave your life of sin. I think it's an absolutely beautiful picture. I think it's interesting that the older ones begin to walk away first. They'd had more time to commit more sins, right? Or they were wise enough to know that they had been caught. They, Jesus was confronting them with their own sin. I don't know if he was writing people's names down or writing their sins down. Like this sin and this sin. Maybe he's not putting names on it, but he's just writing. I'm just making stuff up. I don't know what he was writing. But I believe he drew a line there and said, look, if you're, if you're without sin, you can throw a stone. The challenging and difficult thing in our time is that we've got a lot of religious folks um, with super righteous religious attitudes. Um, even pastors across our nation, right? It, it turns everybody's stomach when they see a pastor that falls into infidelity or addiction to something. It breaks everybody's hearts. Um, but the truth is that we, we can't come from this highly like, kind of like religious, righteous place where we're ready to drag somebody else in, stone them for their sin. Because Jesus painted a very different picture of what salt looked like, and what light looked like. It wasn't judgmental right? It's not us taking on a judgmental place. It's, it's us acting in love and mercy. I asked this question last week. One of the four questions I, I asked you to ask yourself is, who needs mercy? And, and I don't know. I, I don't find this church to be judgmental. I really don't. I, I love you guys because you're not um, more holier than thou or anything like that. I love this environment because of that. Um, but God's called us to walk in the truth and the light. And honestly, as a guy who's got a lot of friends who are gay, as a guy who's had his ups and downs on um, this front of sexual immorality, um, I know that I can't live off of my truth because I've, I've bared the consequences of that. Um, but just because I find tension in trying to live out these two truths that I'm called to walk in this truth and I'm called to walk in this love, 
there's not some easy riddle. There's not like a quick three-step plan to walk through. It's this beautiful, difficult tension of to love as God has loved you and to, to cling tightly to his truth because it is the light and it's the very foundation for our hope in Christ. People need your mercy way more than they need your judgment. Likewise, they need the truth more than they need to be comfortable. And so I think this is kind of maybe where we we leave ourselves today. Maybe you you feel really comfortable with your teddy or your monkey or your, your sexual immorality. Maybe it's not being blasted on social media. Um... Maybe it's not one that people want to throw stones at and people want to be judgmental about. But maybe in some way, maybe some shape, some form, that you've devalued the beautiful sacredness of the way God has created our body and that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and you've been purchased with a price. And I just want to finally just encourage you, don't let the enemy lie to you. Don't let the enemy heap shame on today and know that Jesus calls you to lay that down. We just sang a beautiful song about that. The one we're probably singing right now is just probably about that in some way. That God has called us to walk in in his truth and in his light and in his love. And so I, I know that across this room, you've got family members, you've got friends that are battling um, maybe sexual immorality in some way. Maybe it's You've seen it wreck a family in recent days. Maybe it's, it's put some consequences on your own home. And I just know in this house that, that we serve a God who's not only creator of the universe, but his plan from the very beginning, even before the man and wife, his plan of redemption is beautiful from the start to the finish. His God... This is a God who loves us and has a plan for us. He wants to redeem you from whatever low you found yourself in, that he has a plan with all of our being, including our sexuality. And it's a gift of God that we can honor in our lives. So I want to ask you to stand and just bow your head with me and just begin to search your heart. And maybe I I know for a fact, probably all across this room, this message has put some tension, put some... Uh, anxiety in someone because of some kind of confrontation at some level in this. I'm just pretty certain of that. And before we push away from the table and replace God and exchange the truth of God for a lie, before we push away, let's just take some time and listen to God's voice and just hear the voice of our Savior saying, come as you are. I love you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your holy scriptures. God, even when we're afraid of them, God, sometimes we're afraid of them because we have these misconceptions and we're afraid of, of what you might challenge us to do. God, help us to get a whole new revelation of your character, a whole new picture of your grace and your love running to us that is desperate for us to come home, that is desperate for us to find healing and truth in you and you alone, God. God, I pray that 
today, as, as, as some of us walk out of this room, God, I pray that everyone walks out of this room free, God, and, and not ready to jump back into uh, behaviors of sexual immorality, but fleeing from them, God, that you would create in us, you would renew in us a right mind. Renew in us a right mind. God, for those relationships that all of a sudden, like, we just, we can't, we can't unhave those conversations. We can't un- kind of feel for the pain that people are going through in our home and maybe spread around the city and our friends and family. God, help us to sit lovingly and mercifully and listen and cling to the truth in our hearts, God, and be a light and be salt. As difficult as that is, God, give us your spirit to just give us the words to say and the understanding. We know, God, that your Holy Spirit can, can just do a work that we can't do. We can't do that, God. We, we're not called to judge. We're called to love, God. Help us to be that light. In your holy name we pray. Amen.